1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mathuri, and I'm a host of this channel. Today, we are talking to Daisy Diomampo about her book, Transnational Reproduction, Race, Kinship, and Commercial Surrogacy in India. Daisy is an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham University, and this is her first book with New York University Press. Thank you so much for joining us, Daisy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, and we're really excited to talk about your book. So before we get started on the book itself, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to be an anthropologist?
0: Sure. Um, I guess there are several ways that I could answer that question. Um, one would be... Sort of a methodological path. Um, I, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, I had, um, I was majoring in Spanish and linguistics. Um, and had only taken maybe one or two anthropology classes. Uh, but I was really taken with the methodology. Um, and with the, the notion that, um, in order to really truly understand a particular social problem or issue, uh, you really need to spend, um, conduct long-term field work um, and spend a lot of time really sort of of getting to know that particular issue from um, the perspective of the people um, that you're working with. Um, So as an undergraduate, I uh, received a research grant. It was a small research grant that was enough to pay for travel expenses, but it gave me the opportunity to develop uh, my own sort of research projects, um, and to travel and to conduct field work. Uh, so I was able to sort of come up with a couple of problems that fulfilled, um, the senior, the thesis requirement in my linguistics major and also another project that was part of the certificate in global cultures program that I was also undertaking. Um, and I went to the Philippines and it was really the first time that I was able to Develop and formulate the research problem and methods of a particular project from the beginning to end and to travel somewhere and to make research contacts and to meet people and um, ask them questions and get to know um, and learn more about um, you know how they viewed a particular global issue or problem, for example, um, and I was hooked. Um, and it, it was a while before I, you know, ended up going back to graduate school and studying anthropology, but I knew that I wanted to do something that would enable me um, to really be able to conduct ethnographic field work. Um, and so that was my first sort of taste of what, it, of what that might look like, even though I wouldn't necessarily characterize those projects as um, ethnographic, but it was, it was the, the, the process of being in the field um, that really grabbed me.
1: Um I'm curious, what yeah. were you studying in the Philippines?
0: Yeah, so I had two projects. Um one was a project on Mail Order Brides. Um and so this was in hmm, the nineteen nineties, late mid to late nineteen nineties when I was in college. Um and when I went to the Philippines I had or prior to you know, coming up with this this idea to learn more about this topic, I was just you know learning more about the fact that, um, there was this practice, there was, you know, this was sort of the early days of the internet. Um, people could sort of go on and connect with young women, um, from around, you know, young women in the Philippines, people, you know, men from around the world looking for young brides. Um, and it was framed as, you know, it was, you know, in the media accounts that I was reading about it, it was, you know, sort of framed as, on the one hand, this sort of long distance relationship. Um, but it was also really, you know, what I was interested in understanding more deeply were the broader economic contexts that made this possible. Um, and also the global, the global context that made this possible, right? So, um, there were obviously, there's a, there's sort of complex and entangled economic and global histories. Um, that give rise to these particular kinds of marriages and relationships um, that are themselves often, you know, very unequal. So that was just sort of, it was a really interesting, it was, it was something that I, I really wanted to learn more about. Um, the other project was a linguistic project where I was collecting um, uh, uh, um, linguistic uh, samples of two different um, uh, Filipino um, languages, um, Tagalog and Ilocano, And so for my linguistics degree, I was conducting a sort of comparative um, phonetic and phonemic analysis of these two languages. And so that helps allowed me to sort of, um, you know, I traveled to different parts of the Philippines um, and learned about the different um, Basically, the contrast in these two languages that are, um, that are fairly distinct in terms of, uh, it was a really sort of straight up linguistic, phonemic, and phonetic analysis. Um, but my data consisted of, uh, you know, listening to people's everyday conversations, recordings of people singing, you know, um, local sort of native songs and that sort of thing, folk songs, um, And there were, you know, both of those projects I sort of carried out uh, over the course of the summer before my senior year. Um, And yeah, so those were the two two projects that I carried out at that time.
1: So I definitely see that, you know, your interest in ideologies of gender and technology, you know, go way back, right? Even before this current uh, book project, which, uh, you know, leads me to ask, okay, you were studying anthropology. <laughs> so how did this particular interest in transnational surrogacy and reproductive technologies in India come about?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And I, I think about this a lot. Um, you know, it, uh, listening to sort of reflecting back on that experience what 20 some years ago um i never myself actually really explicitly made the connections between that but it's true there's there's this sort of long-standing interest in understanding um the intersections of you know you know economy and global politics and and how we think about race and gender um and technology um and so you know when i was um Working on my dissertation project. So this book is, is uh, an outgrowth of my dissertation work. Um, I I had actually been, um, planning to work on a sort of very different project in a very different part of the world. Um, I, when I had started graduate school, I was anticipating working on a project that was related to gender and HIV AIDS. Um, likely in Brazil, because that had been where I had previously been been traveling and, and, and doing some uh, language study. Um, and so I knew that I was always interested in something that was health related, something that was gender related. And uh, around the time that I was getting ready to go out to do, um, to prepare preliminary field work, um, this story kept coming up in the media about commercial surrogacy in India. Um, and it just really hooked me. It was a very, very fascinating um phenomenon that sort of encompass all of the intersections of themes that I'm really interested in. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, globalization, health and reproduction and gender. Um, but also there was a really strong for me, a really sort of strong, um, social justice and, and, and equality piece, right? Like I wanted to understand how we could, um, we could sort of approach commercial surrogacy as a, as a, example of reproductive justice or reproductive injustice
1: um, depending on how you um, understand frame it. the question right exactly yeah because early on in your introduction you write this book is about the ways in which surrogate mothers parents egg donors and agents among other actors navigate their relationships formed through gestational surrogacy it's about race and kinship and the ways in which transnational reproduction reflects and reinforces local and global inequalities, right? Mm -hmm. And just reading your book, um, I was moved and struck again and again by the connection, but also, as you point out, the absences, right? These people move in and out of each other's lives through this extremely sort of, revelatory important moment of the birth but then leaving behind these trails of relationships and understandings about the world and these larger structures and not to quite you know put a romantic spin on it or anything I would just perhaps like to ask you to maybe lay out the Land in which you are operating, just in terms of the technology itself, right? Because in some ways, yes, reproductive technologies have been normalized and, you know, we know that they enable parenthood for, you know, single men and women, gay and lesbian couples. But I think there's still some, um, lack of clarity perhaps in how technologies themselves aren't neutral, right? And ideologies are so deeply implicated in them. So, would you start by maybe talking a little bit about the technologies and then the kinds of ideologies that, you know, were so entwined in these and how you were trying to parse them as you sort of began this project? Sure. Um, That's a really big
0: question. But a really important one, I think, and you had mentioned earlier that, you know, we're, we're, the technologies aren't neutral, um, right? And I think that one of the things that was that's really interesting to me as an anthropologist is to unpack how we understand things that may or may not be viewed as simply natural or neutral or whatever the case might be. Um, they're always perceived through particular um, social and cultural lenses, and that was certainly the case in India. And so when we think about you know, we we now have this sort of long history of understanding the role that reproductive technologies play so much so that it's become fairly normalized. Um, but in sort of trying to characterize the lay of the land in which I conducted the field work, um, this is in a very transnational context where, um, you know, I characterize it at the beginning of the book, where people sort of, come together, and, and the, the act of making a baby, of creating a family through surrogacy and IVF and egg donation, it's really characterized by these connections and absences. So the technologies enable um, something that was once considered to be very, very intimate, right? The making of a family, the making of a baby. Um, and they enable all of these actors to come together from around the world who might never meet, um or they may exchange a few words um or if they do meet it's it's only ever so briefly um so the the technologies i don't know if you're asking me to sort of lay out exactly what the technologies are um if you want me to yes um, yes yeah so um The, I guess the, the sort of the baseline technologies that surrogacy relies on, um, is, you know, is primarily IVF or in vitro fertilization, um, in which the sperm and egg might be, will be extracted from, um, from two different bodies, uh, fertilized in vitro, um, in a petri dish. And then once embryos are formed, they're transferred into, uh, the womb of the surrogate mother. Um, so right there you have, multiple potential parents that are involved, um, the sperm donor or the intended father, the egg donor or the intended mother. Um, and they may or may not be the same person. Right. So that could be potential. That's three or four people right there. The, the surrogate mother, um, um, excuse me, let me back up a bit. So you could potentially have a sperm donor, an egg donor, a surrogate mother, and then the parent or parents who will eventually raise the child. So, Um, in this context, there are sort of genetic and biological and social parents, um, who were once sort of conceived of as being the same two people in the sort of traditional nuclear family, but now, um, could encompass, you know, as many as five people. Um, and now those people could be coming from places as wide ranging as, you know, India, um, the United States, Australia, um, all over the world, basically um, and so the process and and in, in in this particular in my study too i had anticipated that um surrogacy would really be the main focus but egg donation was also a major um factor in many people's um um uh, baby making pursuits basically so um there were a number of couples in my study who were traveling to India for gestational surrogacy, but also needed egg donors. Um, and so that entailed another set of questions and decisions that needed to be answered and made, uh, right. In terms of who would the surrogate donor, uh, who would the egg donor be? Where would she come from? What would her background be? And so that was, you know, one area in which race came to really, um, I realized that race was really a a major factor, something that I did not necessarily anticipate at the beginning of the project, but um, very quickly realized was um, a major aspect of many people's understandings of surrogacy um, in India.
1: I mean, methodologically, too, your field site is so complicated, right? Because it traverses so many classes, so many, you know locations, because people are traveling from different parts of the world to congregate in Mumbai, which is where your fieldwork is situated, then what were also, you know, alongside these kinds of uh, hierarchies, the ethical complexities that you encountered working in hospitals or, you know, in situations where confidentiality is really important, right?
0: Yeah, that's an uh, interesting question. Um, it
1: I mean, was what, it difficult to get access to these hospitals and then forge connections with the surrogate mothers or you know be able to talk yeah. to commissioning parents.
0: Yes, um, the in terms of access, it was it was, and, and this is where I I um, realized that. Um, this is where I really realized the, the significance and value of long-term ethnography <laughs> um, was because I knew that if I had sort of landed in India and had given myself four weeks to do this study, I, I never would have been able to carry that. It took me, you know, months, you know, it took me that long just to gain access, to get my foot in the door, to get, you know, some responses from people um, and initial interviews and meetings that would allow me then to spend more time um, in the clinics and the hospitals and with surrogates. Um, it was months before I had my first interview with a surrogate mother. Um, so methodologically, I think of um, I think ethnographic fieldwork is often, you know, especially at the very beginning, a series of stops and starts, right? And until suddenly, you know, the gates open and you have this access, but it, it doesn't seem apparent at the very beginning. It, it was a, it was a difficult start at the outset. Um, but I will say that once I did gain access, once I did was able to conduct some of the initial interviews and clinics, um, who then helped with doctors who then helped me connect with some intended parents here and some surrogate mothers there, then it was sort of the snowball effect. Um, and, you know, thinking in terms of the ethical complexities that you referred to earlier, I, you know, in terms of my methodology, that was something that I had to really think through throughout the course of the entire course of the field work was how I would, um, you know, ethically give voice or or give, um, um, really allow people to tell their stories and, and to, um, to give them that space, right. And to not sort of fall back on the, um, the sort of dominant narratives that we would often hear about these different actors and a lot of the media stories that were being published at that time. And so, um, it was interesting because I found my own sort of preconceived notions being challenged throughout. Um, and so it was a really eye-opening experience in that sense. But um, being able to, I think, connect with intended parents who are traveling around the world, um, traveling from around the world to India um, was really important. Um, and being able to work with um, a translator in my research with surrogates and egg donors a translator who was able to be sympathetic and um, non-judgmental when in, when working with and speaking with surrogates and elders was also really important.
1: So to, you know, begin talking more explicitly about the book, one of the really important concepts that grounds your analysis and, you know, is really important in the field of medical anthropology more broadly, I imagine, is stratified reproduction, right? And Mm -hmm. will you, for our listeners, talk a little bit about that and more broadly, the transnational labor regimes that have come to be at the heart of surrogacy industries? Yeah. So stratified reproduction
0: um, is a term that was initially put forth by Shelley Colin, um, who conducted research with um, West African child caregivers in New York City. Um, and the term helps us to understand the ways in which reproductive labor um, can be stratified um, and differently valued depending on um, one's class, um, race, racial background, nationality, um, and a whole host of other identities, right? Um, so it helps us to understand why we tend, um, you know, in Shelley Cohen's work, for example, the relationships between the um the caregivers um, and the New York City mothers who have hired them to help take care of their children. Um, it shows us how um, the labor of some is being used to help take care of other people's children while their own children must then be taken care of by others in their home countries, right? In the case of um, those who are uh, migrating transnational in order to find work. Um, the context of surrogacy um, we see transnational or we see you know this this concept um being really um it's it's a it's a, a very very sort of intense and clear manifestation of stratified reproduction in the sense that generally the people who tend to be able to um Afford to travel to India, um, hire surrogate mothers, pay for the fees that are associated with travel and the medical care, um, all the legal fees that are associated with traveling back home and then, you know, eventually caring for that child tend to come from high income, um, countries that tend to have, um, higher class backgrounds than the people who are, who who are sort of carrying the babies for them. They tend to be white. Um, and in this case, the surrogate mothers were, um, were there and, you know, no one said that they were doing this solely because they, um, you know, wanted to help someone or for other altruistic reasons. They all said that they needed, you know, that, that may have, that might have been part of it, but they would never have done this if they were not also getting paid. Um, so there was this sort of, intensified stratification of who is carrying out the reproductive labor um, and who, and for whom, right? So those are some of the, that's sort of the broader context in which
1: this was, I was sort of approaching this particular uh, context, right? And you, you know, then go on to argue in your subsequent chapters how ideologies of race and kinship further complicate these transnational structures of inequality, right? And mm-hmm. in your chapters on both egg donation, but also how commissioning parents, you know, have these very racialized relationships with the surrogate mothers so really brings that to the four. So, will you maybe in turn talk about first the relationship with surrogates and how that is racialized and how that, you know, allows them to other the surrogate woman in these very specific ways and then, you know, talk about the egg donation context as well? Yeah, um, definitely. So
0: I think, you know, one of the reasons I was particularly interested in the role that race plays and how these relationships are so racialized is because they were often, um, it was in in a lot of the sort of, when we're describing or characterizing what transnational surrogacy is, surrogacy is or how it happens, it's often, you know, we often say, oh, it's, it, it or I've read, you know, it it's, it takes place across class, race, um, and national boundaries, um, religious boundaries and so on and so forth. Um, but the question of exactly how race comes into being or how race um is operationalized or how those racial processes um occur was something that I, I was interested in understanding more and um so that was something that sort of underlined this particular um my particular approach. Um in the context of intended parents' relationships with surrogates and how they how they understood the relationships with surrogates, um it was interesting because, you know, it's often, you know, we take for granted they come from different class backgrounds, right? One is obviously has the money to be able to afford these particular procedures. Another party is doing this because they need the money, because they're looking for um income and they're um, looking for ways to improve their lives, right, so that class narrative is was definitely there. Um, but what struck me as um, what struck me as I was conducting my interviews were the particular uh, scripts that sort of were relied upon over and over as intended parents tried to make sense of their relationships with surrogate mothers. Um, and this was often in the context of an absence of any kind of relationship, right? Where they were sort of meant to under, on their own, and, or based on their own understanding of their relationship with these women, um, what they believed to be the basis of their relationship, of their kinship, right? Um, and those narratives were often very racialized. Um, even though race was never necessarily something that was explicitly referred to, Um, the ways in which they spoke about the surrogates, um, often relied on a series of tropes or scripts that serve to other a particular population of people to, um, characterize or essentialize a particular group of people as inherently, um, one thing or another. It's something that made them, you know, really appropriate, um, people to be Um, working or serving as surrogate mothers. Um, And so in some of the examples that I use in the book, I talk about how intended parents um, rely on this trope of uh, saving the surrogate mother. So the the surrogate mother is constructed as um, an object to be saved, saved as a, a, you know, it's sort of, you know, for some it's a kind of humanitarian um, effort, uh, that's akin to you know charity or, or that sort of thing um, where you're giving and really helping someone else to uplift themselves out of poverty. Um, it was a rescue narrative, right? Mm-hmm. It's not unlike the narratives that we would hear when people would talk about um, the, the narratives that people use when talking about transnational adoption. Um, those narratives, I think. Served on the one hand to help people feel comfortable with what they were doing um in the context of commercial surrogacy um where the parties come from uh you know in a context of inequality basically um but it also served to really um erase any kind of complexity or nuance to the surrogate's own particular histories I think it it centralized them it othered them as nothing more than um, um, good mothers who needed saving, in a sense, right? That was one particular, um, example, um, that I used to sort of illustrate how this relationship becomes racialized in a, in a particular way.
1: I mean, as for the egg donation, you know, I your examples were actually really surprising because, you know, they went against this received notion that of course commissioning parents will choose an egg donor from, you know, the same race as them, so that, you know, their child will grow up looking like them. And in fact, you point out that increasingly some families are selecting donors with darker skin Mm tones. And you suggest that, you know, that is not necessarily a challenge to racial hierarchies at all. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. So this was uh, another interesting piece in which I saw uh, another context in which I saw racialization processes unfold in, in interesting and unexpected ways. So the, the, the dominant narrative too at the time was that people were traveling to India um, making use of these technologies to have babies that would ultimately look like them. Um, so matching was always taken for granted. It was always assumed matching, you know, and I mean, by matching, I mean phenotypic matching, right? Intended parents would go, um, and they would be fine with having, uh, an Indian woman carry the baby, but the egg donor, you know, if they were using a donor, um, had to look like them so that you could sort of recreate this white family. In a sense, um, that was not what I found <laughs> in the end. Of um, uh, a portion of the f- intended parents that I interviewed, um, uh, uh, I think it was around half of the intended parents that I interviewed ended up going to India, um, not only for surrogacy but also for egg donation. Um, and of those intended parents who needed egg donation, um, many of them selected Indian egg donors intentionally. Uh, so this, it was striking for several reasons. Um, one is obviously that they're intentionally creating, in a sense, a, um, a, a multiracial family, right? They're tr- they're seeking to sort of challenge or contradict this, this perceived notion that um, everyone is here to, you know, recreate the white family and maintain, you know, white, you know, patriarchal family norms and that sort of thing. And you know many of the intended parents I spoke with sort of sort of hinted at that, right and they said this is something um, that is important to them um, that could reflect their particular their unique histories, the origin stories of this particular family um but the other side of that is is how do we understand um, what are the other sort of notions of um, of uh, how do we understand the particular racialized notions of family and beauty that go along with it, right? So it was interesting to me, a lot of um, parents would talk about, again, India as this sort of, um, in a sense, as, um, as a sort of, again, it was sort of othered in a way. It was orientalized in the sense that it was um this distance between the intended parent and the egg donor was maintained in the sense that they were deliberately creating something that they saw as exotic um and that was something that they wanted to um you know that they believed was beautiful and and deserved um uh, deserved a place in this world, but it nonetheless art relied on particular sort of essentialized and orientalized notions of the Indian and the other. Um, and it's, it was a, you know, I think it was that particular aspect of my fieldwork, like that chunk of my fieldwork like that led me to think, to think about how race sort of is enfolded in all of the different ways in which we think about, um, kinship and family and um, and so on and so forth and the ways in which it sort of um, emerges in unexpected places where we might least expect it.
1: Right. And then of course, you know, you go on to show the very complex legal terrain that commissioning parents encounter once the child has been born and there are all these These hurdles in terms of acquiring citizenship uh, from the country that they are from. And, you know, you note that not all countries necessarily even have legal frameworks in place. So, what were the kinds of, uh, you know, problems that you saw parents encounter and how did they go about solving these? it's extremely sort of complicated citizenship uh, battles.
0: Well, it's it, it was very complicated. Um, the the sort of particular path or journey that a parent might have back to their home country after um, having their child for service in India um, really varied depending on that particular country's understanding of citizenship. Um, and how citizenship is acquired or transferred between parent and child and who that parent is and what defines parenthood and so on and so forth. So there are, it, there were, um, and, you know, this is sort of, uh, a, a very complex and complicated question in the context of India. There are many examples of how the legal framework sort of, um, um uh, so in, in, it, There are many examples of how legal, uh, frameworks and, and different and contradictory, contradicting notions of citizenship, uh, resulted in, uh, these sort of long, um, um, uh, withholding of the child. Right. Uh, Right. Exactly. Um, but in the book, I focus on two specific examples, um, that really highlight how differently those journeys might be depending on who you are. Um, so in the case of the United States, for example, citizenship is based on, um, it can be transferred through from parent to child, right? But in the context of the United States, what determined parenthood was that genetic relationship. Um, so an American parent who didn't necessarily carry the child, um, would be identified as the parent of that child with, with the DNA test. Um, and so when I was conducting my fieldwork, and this was in 2010, many of the people I interviewed knew that they needed, you know, this set of paperwork and a DNA test, uh, to show that there was that genetic relationship. Um, this is not the case, um, for other places. So whereas in the United States, someone would be able to sort of, you know, get the paperwork together and leave the country to return home in as soon as two weeks. Um, Norwegian parents that I met had been, you know, would be stuck in India, in a sense, for weeks, sometimes months at a time, waiting for approval. Um, and that is, in a sense, that was, um, that I already shows that it was, the, in, in Norway, citizenship is not necessarily defined by that genetic relationship, but who gave birth to the child. Um, so Norway recognizes the birth mother as the biological parent as the mother who then has to, has the the power to determine who you know where that child has citizenship in this context. it's an Indian woman who is um um considered the parent um and not the norwegian mother who may have donated her genetic eggs or uh, her her genetic um material right um so there's a a much different sort of um, complicated and long-winded.
1: citizenship, right? Yeah, right.
0: exactly. Um, and so that basically led to, for many people, you know, long stays in India. You know, a great deal of frustration. Where, um, you know, the mother of her own child would, you know, tell me stories of how they had to literally adopt their own child, um, even if they were the genetic parent, simply because they did not give birth to the child, um. And because this is you know, this is all taking place in a global context and everyone has these different understandings of parenthood and citizenship and what constitutes citizenship, um, there were often, you know, many a lot of these different opportunities for that process to break down. Um and there are a few very sort of um well known cases in in India in which, you know, people uh, languished for months before they were able to leave. Um and gain citizenship to their to their parents' country.
1: I mean, I'm just uh, being a little provocative here, but I'd be curious to know your thoughts on whether the fact that Norway, for example, recognizes the role of reproductive labor in conferring citizenship, as opposed to, say, the United States, which is, you know, this sort of blanket, blood equal to parenthood, equal to citizenship. I'm just thinking out loud here in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, reinstating ideas of genetic ties as the foundational stone of family and Mm -hmm. not so much as who really did the work of family making so is is that something that you um grappled with while thinking of this citizenship conundrum
0: yeah uh, absolutely i mean i think you know in these two examples that, that that i think of that or that i write about it's 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 a clear example of how we think about particular notions of parenthood and citizenship being reinforced um Right. And how technologies, how reproductive technologies enable that, um, in one context, right, where we can say, um, you know, that genetic relationship is really what counts in the context of the United States. Um, and we can see how the technologies, um, sort of challenge that and throw that up in the air in the context of Norway, where, you know, many of the parents that I spoke with were extremely frustrated because they just, um, you know, they were describing what they saw as the state's lack of, of ability to, in a sense, modernize, to keep with the times, to acknowledge the fact that the family as it is being made today does not resemble the family, um, that existed at the time that these particular laws came into, into being. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to see how um how the laws and how the technologies intersect and how they differently affect um families and and um and their efforts to um you know in this context to return home I and mean, okay.
1: I mean just to you know start wrapping up uh this segment of our conversation, I you know want to ask you to elaborate a little bit on your decision to really write against this narrative of victimhood, right, that you mentioned earlier, where there's a tendency amongst sort of layman media or activists to cast surrogate women as victims of the surrogacy industry. And, you know, you're very firm in pointing out that it's not at all such a simple case of black and white, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, this was
0: something that that was that was very important to me as I was sort of analyzing and writing up this research because when I had started the project um the the surrogates in particular were characterized in very black and white ways um, they were often. Um, portrayed as victims, um, as marginalized as sort of forced or coerced into surrogacy by husbands or families and so on and so forth. Um, they were portrayed as, um, you know, women who were just out there to, to take care of their families and build houses for their, fam- you know, who were willing to do whatever it took. Um, what I saw when I was actually conducting my field work was that this was such a um, it was there was such a lack of nuance to this portrayal to this representation right and and it it felt like it it could not what i was what i my goal in writing this book was to really show was to show the complexities of these relationships and the decisions that people make to get into surrogacy um and to highlight the inequalities that underlie um, all of these decisions and the ways in which surrogacy unfolds for uh, surrogate mothers in particular, right? But to also show them as active agents in this process um, who were not forced into surrogacy, who were making difficult decisions, who were um, really trying to uh, in a sense um Get a piece of this, uh, of this sort of global surrogacy industry on the best terms they could, they could come up with, right? Um, that, that said, they were, they were the players who had the least amount of power. Um, and so I'm, I don't necessarily want to argue that there's no, that there were, there there were no exploitative relationships inherent in, in this process. Um, but only that we take a moment to understand the, diversity and the complexities of surrogate's own particular histories and their lives and, and what brings them to this process, right? And how um, um, their experiences and their decisions and their narratives must also be taken into account when we talk about um, exploitation, inequality and, 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 and all these other issues. Um, cause what seemed to me at the time that I was, you know, working on this book and there were so many debates around, um, how to regulate surrogacy and so on and so forth, right? It was their voices that were often missing. Um, and that was really frustrating to me because the woman that I interviewed had, had a lot to say. (laughs) Um, and had opinions that I thought were, uh, were worth including in the discussion.
1: Well, Daisy, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, what are you working on these days?
0: Um, I am working on a new research project that's looking at uh, the role that race plays, again, and how we think about identity in the context of gamete donation. Um, and this time, I have turned the lens um, sort of to the country where I live, in the United States, um, and I'm focused particularly on Asian American experiences of egg and sperm donation. Um, for several reasons. Uh, one is that they're now one of, uh, the largest ethnic group that utilizes assistive reproductive technologies. Um, but at the same time, Asian, um, egg donors and sperm donors are sort of the minority in, um, in, in the context of, um, egg and sperm banks, um, and practices. So, there's a um I think a disconnect between uh the demand and the supply that has led to um the differential valuing of eggs and sperm based on one's race and ethnicity um among a lot of other factors. So that's what I'm currently working on now. I've been doing field work in New York and Los Angeles and I'm traveling to Honolulu again for the third time this summer to do the fieldwork and um, it's great. I'm uh, sort of continuing a lot of the really interesting questions and inquiries that started with the with the Servicely project. So,
1: well, that sounds really interesting, and we look forward to having you back on NBN to talk about your next book. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was Daisy Diomampo talking about her book Transnational Reproduction race, kinship, and commercial surrogacy in India. Thank you for listening to new books in South Asian Studies.